Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Boom, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and today we have hit an incredible milestone. This is our 400th episode since the Urban Farm Podcast launched a mere three years ago this month. Plus, the really great news is that we have had over 1.3 million listens. That is a whole lot of people impacted. Our success is in great part because of you, our loyal listeners. So I want to take a moment to give you a heartfelt thanks for your dedication to joining the food revolution and taking responsibility for your food system. Given this epic milestone, we have a very special episode planned. Our guest is one of the pioneers in the organic gardening and farming arena. I assure you that you will be inspired by what he has to say. Growing plants that thrive in our yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you will receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. Today on our podcast, we have someone who has been a resource for organic gardeners for over three decades. We're talking with Elliot Coleman about the 30th anniversary of his book, the new organic grower. Elliot has over 50 years experience in all aspects of organic farming, including field vegetables, greenhouse vegetables, rotational grazing of cattle and sheep, and range poultry. He is the author of The New Organic Grower, Four Seasons Harvest, The Winter Harvest Handbook, and an instructional workshop DVD called Year-Round Vegetable Production with Elliot Coleman, all through our friends at Chelsea Green. Elliot and his wife, Barbara Damrosh, operate a commercial year-round market garden and run horticultural research projects at their farm called Four Seasons Farm in Harborside, Maine. Welcome to the show today, Elliot. Are you ready to rock the organic garden? I always am. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Well, before I got into farming, I was what I refer to as a semi-pro adventurer. I had a teaching job so I could have all those vacations free to go mountaineering, whitewater kayak expeditions, rock climbing, you name it. And one day, 
when I was about 28, I read a book about small farming, and it made it sound like an adventure. Wow. I suspect I was thinking there should be something more socially redeeming in my future than the next mountaintop, and small farming sounded like it, and I dove right into it, and it was the best adventure I ever went on. Wow. And what year was that that you started that adventure? Yeah, it was 1966 when I read this book. I immediately got a hold of a piece of land to begin farming on just so I could get my hands dirty or my feet wet or whatever it was. Uh Two years later, I had the opportunity to buy a small piece of wooded land in Maine, which is where I am now. And the fact that it was wooded and that there was only two inches of topsoil and there were the usual New England rocks all over the place Mm -hmm. made it even more of an adventure because we had to cut down the trees and grub out the stumps and roll away the rocks and bring in all sorts of organic matter to try and turn two inches of poor topsoil into the 10 inches of beautiful fertile loam that we have now. Wow. And that was like 1968. So you've been at this farm for 50 years. Yeah. Our 50th anniversary is October 21st this fall. That was the day I arrived 50 years ago. Wow. Well, congratulations. (laughs) Yeah, I've had a wonderful time doing it. Let me tell you that. Nice. So let's just pretend that I drive up your driveway at your farm and park in the parking lot and get out and I shake your hand. What am I looking at? Can you share with my listeners what they're going to see? Well, they're going to see about 14 acres cleared of the 40 acres we own. The uncleared area gets either too rocky or too wet or too steep to use for farming. And on that 14 acres, we have only two acres that we've managed to get into truly exceptional soil. Mm -hmm. Then we also have an orchard. We have buildings, roads, and pastures. The whole thing is a beautiful emerald green diamond in the middle of a forest. Wow. So, and on your website, Four Season Farm, is that fourseasonfarm.com? That's correct. There's a beautiful video. It's about a two and a half minute video on there on your About Us page. Oh, yes. Yeah. For all of you that are listening out there, go to fourseasonfarm.com and check out his About Us page. It was just stunning. And you guys raise a lot of food on the property there that you actually sell, correct? Oh, my gosh. Yes. We're probably grossing over 100 fowl per acre on the land that we have in intensive vegetables, which probably would make any large-scale chemical grower very jealous of how much can be produced. We put the rows close together. We make sure the soil is just as fertile as we can make it. And we've found that the more crops we offer, the better on the small farm because we need to be almost like a supermarket. Mm -hmm. And so we grow about 45 different crops and many of them we grow year-round because the other thing you will see if you're standing there outside of your car are an awful lot of greenhouses. Ah, yes, you would need that up there in Maine, I would suspect. In order to start as early as we'd like and to keep going on through the winter, the greenhouses are indispensable. Yeah. And where are you selling all your goodies at? Well, that's my other rule of thumb for the small farm. We know how many customers we can count on within a 25-mile radius, and we basically grow enough to feed them. And that means we haven't suddenly grown extra amounts of this or that crop that have to take us into the wholesale market where someone could decide they don't need it this week. We grow 
just about what the local market will absorb, and we have more devoted, dedicated customers than you can count. I'm quite sure most businesses would be jealous of us. Yeah. Wow. So that is a unique way to run a farm, putting a 25-mile circle around your farm and saying, all right, I'm only going to grow for people in this space. Yeah, I was going to say the interesting thing is we often will get uh, letters from chefs who've heard that we do a good job with this or that crop and asking if we'll ship some to them in New York or Arizona or something. And we tell them that our preferred answer to that is that we will come out and show their local growers how to do what we do. Nice. You know, a good friend of mine, Scott Murray, who is also a mentor, is a big, big proponent of communities, faith communities and school communities, of setting up small farms and growing for their community. And it sounds to me like that's what you've done. Basically, it is. And the nice thing about it is no one has to worry about the quality of what they're getting because they can all come here and see how well we do it. Yeah. They know us and they know that we have integrity. Beautiful. So I speak all the time about our number one job as growers is to grow healthy soil. And I know that you've already kind of alluded to that a couple of times. So in your mind, what makes healthy soil? Maybe what components go into healthy soil? How do you do that? Yeah, well, the key ingredient, of course, is life. And life is all of those billions of microorganisms that power the soil. And when people ask me, and we're going back to the mid-60s, what was the book that most inspired me? It was a book called Soil Microbiology. It was a soil microbiology textbook by a researcher called Selman Waxman. And I remember reading that, and there were statements like there are a million live organisms in a teaspoon of fertile soil. Wow. You're talking to an adventurer. I said, wow, that's a place I want to go visit. That's the neatest thing I ever heard of. All of these microorganisms in the soil that make fertility happen, their food is organic matter. Mm. Any organic matter, any compost you can make and get back onto your garden, it's really that simple. And I think this is the best evidence that Mother Nature wants us to be well-fed because here is the world's best fertilizer compost, and you don't have to buy it. You can make it for free in your backyard from organic matter. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. <laughs> I keep I'm thinking, oh, yeah, this is a well-designed operation. Yeah, no kidding. So I have a copy of the new Organic Grower, the new version, 30th anniversary edition sitting here in front of me. Thank you, Chelsea Green. I appreciate sending it over. You know, I was just thumbing through it this morning before we chatted, and I opened it to chapter 13. And this is one of the things that I'm playing with a lot here at the Urban Farm. It's called Farm Generated Fertility. Let's talk about that. What do you do to generate your own fertility on site? Well, the earth is designed to grow plants, and it is the residues of those plants that create fertility. And so here's the best example I can give you of the difference between organic gardening and organic farming. In organic gardening, people are concerned about which fertilizer to buy. And if they want to be natural, they think they should get bone meal rather than the chemical superphosphate, or they should get the soybean meal rather than some nitrogen fertilizer. And that works incredibly well and makes organic gardening a very successful way to grow food on the 
home garden scale. However, on the farm scale, where you're dealing in larger areas, and especially if you do what we do, which is incorporating livestock as part of the fertility program, then you want to do something like put half the farm every year into a clover, grass, legume mix and graze your livestock on it. Our livestock for the last few years have been laying hens because eggs are an extra special product to complement vegetables on the small farm. And the chickens graze, they're just as happy as they can be wandering over this green carpet all summer long. They live in little wheeled houses with a mesh floor on them. So when they're in there at night, safe from predators, the manure is falling through the floor onto the ground. And then every morning we push those houses their length further down the field. Basically, we are turning the organic chicken feed we buy. 75% of it comes out the back end of the chicken as manure, and we're turning that into fertility for next year's crops. Next year, we till up that field, put another chunk of the farm into grass, clover, and repeat it. And this is farm-generated fertility because grass and clover, the roots of these crops, if they are in there for a year, they put an enormous amount of organic matter in the soil. They create soil structure. They have all sorts of other benefits like that. And I'm not doing any work other than putting those in there. The natural world and photosynthesis are making them grow. The chickens are happily scratching around, eating bugs and eating the grass and clover, and fertility is being created. Interestingly, I thought the first place we would go was making our own compost, and the first place you went was cover crops and chickens. Right. Now, obviously, making compost is neat, but if I can combine one crop that the farm can sell, eggs, with creating the fertility for the other crops I'm growing, the vegetables, this is an even better deal. There's synergy involved. You have all those great hen workers, you know, on your farm helping you manage the space. That's invaluable. They are just beautiful to see a flock of hens arranging across a grass pasture during the day. It's one of the prettiest sights you'll see on a small farm. So you're actually using them, a cover crop and the chickens, and then you've also used goats and cows? The system originally in England years ago was called lay farming, and lay is an old Anglo-Saxon word for a temporary pasture. After animals grazed a pasture for a year or two or three, they would till it up and get a year's crop off of there. And using that freely generated fertility generated by just the fact that the grass and clover are growing. Those early farmers who were doing this usually had cattle and sheep. And if we were a larger farm and had more space and more good land, I'm quite sure I would love to have cattle and sheep. But for the scale of farm we are, laying hens are the perfect complement. We have 15 hens here at the urban farm in our backyard, and they free range during the day in our backyard, and they eat bugs and eat weeds and fertilize our garden bed. The little houses that they live in at night are five feet by six feet by three feet tall, and they sit on cartwheels. And we love cute names, so since they look like rickshaws, we call them chickshaws. And the beauty of it is that we can move them across this field, as I said, and each night the manure falls through. And it's sort of like we've turned their night housing into a manure spreader that's spreading their fertilizer evenly over the area every night.
Beautiful. So I want you to think back 30 years. And can you remember what motivated you to write The New Organic Grower? Well, I'm a book nerd. I have a probably as good a personal library on the subject as exists anywhere in this country. And all of those books I refer to as my grandparents because I didn't have grandparents ahead of me in farming who uh, I could mm-hmm. learn from. These books became my grandparents. And since I'm a passionate about learning how to do whatever I'm going to do as well as possible, I also spent a lot of time when I first got into it uh, visiting other farmers and especially the small farmers in Europe who I learned oh, so yes. much from back in the in mm-hmm. the 70s. And so basically all these nice people had shared with me all this wonderful information, valuable information on how to grow crops uh, that are going to taste good and be good for the world. And I just thought, oh, okay, here's all this information these nice people have shared with me. My responsibility to pay them back is to pass it on. Yeah, beautiful. And that's what inspired that's what inspired the the first uh, uh, edition mm-hmm. of the book, which came out in uh, in eighty uh, eight. Which yeah, that's why thirtieth anniversary the 30th anniversary when that came out. Yeah, and it's just been it's been delightful because uh, as I'm as I was writing things up, I could remember uh, uh, Pierre, the nice little uh, farmer in in France, who uh, uh, I happened to. I'd drive by his place, and I saw the fields covered with seaweed. Well, we live near the coast. We bring seaweed up and put it in our fields. And it was just the most wonderful experience. I stopped. I speak enough French to get by. And I told him how neat that was and that uh, I used that on my farm. And we, he said, well, good. Come on in and, and sit down and, and have, uh, have some of my hard cider. They make a lot of that in, in Normandy. And so, you know, he never met me before. I never met him before, but we were uh, coming together uh, over the the way we farmed. And we had a delightful hour sitting in his kitchen, drinking hard cider. And uh, But, uh, yeah, the best thing, and you wonder whether we used to have a tradition like this. I said to him, God, this cider is is great. Uh, You know, how how do you uh, get it made? And he said, well, I just... uh, I take my apples to the cider press. And I said, is that far? And he said, no, doesn't every village have a cider press? <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. It was a wonderful, it was a wonderful time, wonderful conversation. Yeah, no kidding. No kidding. So another one of your projects I'm particularly interested in, it's this uh, instructional workshop called Year Round Vegetable Production. Tell us about that and how it came to be and well, let's start there. Tell us about it and how it came to be. Well, another thing about being an adventurer, you always need to try the impossible. And if you live where we live, where uh, this is a, a zone five climate and uh, winter is long and cold, um, I uh, uh, I have a passion for uh, ice hockey and uh, our the irrigation pond on the farm by pure chance happens to be the size and shape of a hockey rink. And we have skated on it as early as uh, Thanksgiving and as late as late as the first week in April. And so winter goes on for a long time and it's cold. And I 
sort of every year when I gave away my business to the supermarkets, I said, well, golly, we ought to be able to extend our season. So we just kept plugging away at it. And first we went further into the fall and we started sooner in the spring. And then one day, voila, it was the end of winter and we were growing all winter long in unheated greenhouses with hardy leafy greens and other crops. And obviously there's no tomatoes and peppers and eggplants and the usual hot weather crops. But there are all these wonderful hardy crops like spinach and all of the Asian greens and scallions and carrots. And we were able to keep them going and found out that when you grow the hardy crops that don't mind cold, when it is cold, the flavor is just so much more intense and they taste better. That was the start of it, and so I kept researching it, and it turned out that there was a lot of information on the fact that we weren't breaking any of the laws of horticulture because these plants, uh, this was their season, and they were happy to do it. And so I put together a one-day course with all sorts of slides that we'd taken here on the farm explaining the different techniques and so forth. And basically, the techniques are we're growing in an unheated greenhouse, and we have a second layer of plastic inside the greenhouse, a foot above the soil. And each layer of plastic moves the covered area here on the East Coast about 500 miles to the south. So the outside weather in February, let's say, in Maine, is very cold, but 500 miles to the south, which is what I've created with the greenhouse, you have the climate of New Jersey. And then that second layer of plastic inside moves the climate under there down to Georgia. You know, I'm not burning any fossil fuels to create this. This is just double protection. And so anything that'll grow over winter in Georgia will grow over winter in Harborside, Maine under double coverage. Wow. Yeah, my publishers filmed that one-day workshop, and that's what they put together with this year-round vegetable production DVD. That's one of my favorite games that we play was that we were able to tell winter to back off. Exactly. And it really feels to me like you have a real passion for all of this in your heart for writing about it and sharing about it. It feels to me like it fills up your life nicely. Oh, it does. I mean, I love to eat and I love to eat the highest quality food I can find. And the fact that anybody in their backyard, if they'll use a little compost and maybe a bit of crop rotation can grow equal to the best quality food anyone would ever want to eat. Especially because we're growing it right here, right now, and harvesting it when it's ripe. And fresh, yes. So you've been at this a long time. How has this adventure changed in the past, say, decade? The knowledge has gotten spread around further because there's more and more interest in organic farming. But the basics of it are pretty much what I learned 50 years ago from the first old timers I talked to and read about. It's just making sure that you are nurturing all of those powers that the earth has on its own for free and directing them through natural techniques to make the soil more productive than it would be on its own. And you do that by just intensifying the things that work well, like organic matter in the soil. And the greenhouses, of course, intensify heat, so they work together. And watching nature, I would say. I pay close attention to what goes on around me, and I have notebooks filled with observations. That's how we learn even more. Try and figure out, oh, was that the best time to plant that, or should we have cultivated it sooner, et cetera, et cetera. So how has 
people's reactions changed over the past decade or two to what you're doing and healthy, fresh food? Oh, golly, you'd go back 50 years if I wandered into the extension office and managed to utter the word organic. You could see them looking around to see if I'd tracked manure in on their carpet or something. No, we were definitely considered Luddites and anti-scientific. In fact, in some of the old books, people are telling stories about college professors who are practically fulminating because some organic farmer has said, no, you don't need that. You can do it this way. And these people are saying, well, our science shows, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, maybe their science showed that, but it doesn't mean that other science is wrong. Yeah. So I'm going to shift on you and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure and what you might have learned from it. Well, I can't tell you the <laughs> number of times we've failed, which is what comes when you're always trying things you don't know how to do. The reason none of them bother me is because if you are determined to succeed, you just need to sit down and think, okay, what did we do wrong? How could we modify it next time? What are the parameters of what we're working on? And what are other ways of looking at this? The whole idea of failure is that you learn things from it. You know, one of my passions was whitewater kayak racing, and I spent one summer teaching kids whitewater kayak out at a camp in Colorado. And I'd watch them when they first got into the kayaks, and they were very, very tenuous about trying to make sure they didn't tip over. And the first thing I told them was, if you don't tip over, you're not trying something you don't know how to do. So basically, we tip over a lot, and we try and roll back up. And thus far, we've succeeded. I can't think of anything that has beaten us. Well, yeah, we still don't have a total handle on the Colorado potato beetle, but we're doing pretty darn well. There's a few other things to learn. That's the last pest that occasionally bothers us. So the fact that we grow 45 different crops without pests, that's pretty good. Wow. So what do you consider your biggest success? I would have to say it's the winter harvest just because of all the things we've been doing. That was the one that when we got into it, it was like being on another planet because there wasn't any information. Nobody had been there before. So this was truly an exploration into the wilds. I mean, the basic organic farming, I mean, there were just brilliant people in the past before us who laid the groundwork for the concepts that we follow. But the winter harvest in a cold climate with no heat, that was a good one. And we had a heck of a lot of fun. In fact, my kids used to give me a hard time. I'd come wandering into the house when we were first playing around with these ideas. And I'd say, wow, you guys wouldn't believe what we... And they'd say, all right, all right, we've heard it before. Make the vinaigrette and let's have dinner. But it was just one miracle after another. Perfect. And what drives you? What's your big why in the world? I'm having fun. I'm a fortunate person in that my vocation and my avocation overlap. And what I do for a living and what I find great joy in doing are pretty much the same thing. And since you know, everybody eats and having people hungry is just one of the worst things one can imagine. So the idea that we have been working on helping people figure out how to feed themselves and feed themselves exceptional food and feed themselves exceptional food without great expense, especially since if you make compost and dig up your backyard, you can do a pretty good job of it. That's pretty much what's driven me, how to make sure everybody is well-fed forever and ever. 
Yeah, I have one of those kind of goals. I'm working on transforming our global food system for that reason. Here, here. If you could recommend one book for our listeners, and I know you already said you were a bookophile, but what would it be and why? Well, this is the first book I give to anybody who comes to work here or volunteer here, and it is entitled Make Friends with Your Land. And the author's name is Leonard Wickenden, and it was written in 1949. Most people think nobody knew anything about organic farming back in 1949, especially Leonard Wickenden, who was the past president of the American Institute of Chemists. However, yes, he retired to his home in Connecticut, got into gardening, and found out, and he was a good scientist, oh my God, this organic stuff works. And he started researching it, and he wrote this just delightful little book. And so I went today on a World Cat, which is a website that tells you which library has which book. And I found out that there are 75 copies of this in libraries all over the country. So if someone wanted to go to their library and maybe even through interlibrary loan, request a copy of Make Friends With Your Land, they would find it's just a delightful read. Perfect. And what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, Probably if you want to eat well and you want to trust how the food was grown, the saying has always been that you want to know the first name of the grower. And to make it even better, since you already know your own first name, make sure that as much as possible you're the grower because this is more fun than anything I've ever done and I think your listeners will find the same thing. Amen to that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Elliot. It's been my pleasure. So how can our listeners find you? Well, we have a website, fourseasonfarm.com, F-O-U-R-S-E-A-S-O-N-F-A-R-M.com, and contains pictures of the farm, information about us and our books, and copies of articles I've written that might not be available elsewhere. Perfect. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Elliot Coleman. We are your urban farming resource. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. Also visit urbanfarm.org to find articles, podcasts, webinars, courses, and more. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Growing plants that thrive in our yard is a lot easier than you think. It starts with saving your own seeds and letting them remember what they already learned. Just text SEEDS to 33444 or visit IWantToSaveSeeds.com and you will receive our free webinar about why seeds matter, why saving them is easy, and how you can save your own. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, Hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago. Then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. 
They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.